welcome to the Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer Podcasts, which are now entering their fourth year of broadcast. Who would have thought that when Seth died in 2014, all these years later we would be making a podcast in his memory? It's a really exciting time for Charlotte and me. We've been recording 30 podcasts, one for each day in November, as part of Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. Charlotte has been talking to all kinds of people involved with pancreatic cancer and over the next 30 days we will hear lots of personal stories. Stories of love, stories of commitment, stories of hope and sadly, as always with pancreatic cancer, stories of loss. Each story will help you understand the challenges of pancreatic cancer as well as the signs and symptoms and will help you to have conversations with people and ensure that they are aware of what to look out for. Join us each day for our Purple Rainbow podcast. If you miss any of the episodes, you can catch up by visiting www.purplerainbow.co.uk where all of the podcasts will be stored for you to listen to at your leisure. Follow us on your podcast channel, like and share, and join us for an interesting month with lots of stories of love and hope. Welcome to this episode of Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer Podcast with me, Charlotte. Today I'm talking to Annabelle Bowie and Phil Hopley, who are both from the Europac study team. Now, Phil is the research fellow at Europac and Annabelle is the study coordinator. I began by asking them just what their study is about. Europac is 25 years old next year um, and we're a research study based in Liverpool and we are looking into um, familial pancreatic cancer as well as hereditary pancreatitis. It's made up of me and Phil and our study leads are Professor Halloran and Professor Greenhoff. What are you looking at in particular? What, what are you what are you doing without it being at a level that I won't understand? So talk to me as though I know nothing because that's where we're at. <laughs> About 10% of pancreatic cancer cases have come from people who have got a family history of pancreatic cancer as well. Uh, I mean, you know, 90% of cases are, are sporadic, so just one-off cases. But in that 10%, what we generally tend to see is that there's a clustering of pancreatic cancer cases on one side of a person's family. Now, given that pancreatic cancer is a relatively uncommon cancer to by chance find more than one case of pancreatic cancer on one side of a person's family is statistically uncommon um, or unlikely. And so we'd, we then start to wonder whether or not there's a, a hereditary genetic predisposition to individuals from that family developing a pancreatic cancer. What we don't know is what that genetic mutation might be and we don't know what gene target is going to be running through that family so we use the family history to make a a bit of an educated assumption that there might be that gene there and we register those families with ourselves and then use the information that they provide to us, the the blood and urine samples that they provide to us, and then the screening results that we get from those participants who we screen to try and answer that question as to what the the underlying genetic link might be in those families. 
and at the moment, obviously, you know, you're still it's still ongoing. It's still still working through the stuff. But what are what are you finding out so far? Because I'm guessing there's different stages of the research. It's, you know, you go stage one, stage two, stage three. Where well, you know what what, are you, what what what's coming up for you at the moment? Our, our families tend to broadly differentiate themselves into two categories: either those that have got a, a mutation in a in a known cancer causing gene that has then also been associated with an increased risk of pancreatic cancer or those families that purely have pancreatic cancer in their family. We've been able to, to find some um, novel genetic targets that would be able to, to try and explain that. But that's mostly around the group of people who have um, a family history of pancreatitis. And from them, we know one particular mutation in particular that puts them at a an increased risk of developing pancreatic cancer. We've also been able to develop a, a risk scoring system. One of the, the things that we use to measure an individual's risk from, you know, based on their, their family history, how closely related effective family members are to them, um, how many cases over the age of 40 there are in the family, and then similarly, how many unaffected individuals there are in the family. So by identifying this, what do you hope this will achieve? What could, what could the future look like? The important thing with, with any pancreatic cancer case is to be able to catch it at its earliest stage. Traditionally, we, we've not been very good at being able to do that purely because of the fact that by the time it causes someone's symptoms, it normally presents at a state that's too late to offer any curative treatment. The hope... The, the target for the future would be to allow us to be able to identify people who genuinely are at a higher risk of developing pancreatic cancer and then target a, a screening program to those individuals so that we can you know, be actively looking at their pancreas and, and seeing abnormalities developing at a time where they otherwise wouldn't cause symptoms but is clearly going to develop into something that, that we need to be treating. We've, we've got several cases like that in our screening programme. But, you know, as, a, as I said at the start of all of this, we're only looking at the, the 10% of people that, that have got a family history and it would be nice to be able to, to roll that out to the, the wider population. I know when I've spoken to people who've lost members of their family to pancreatic cancer, one of the things that, that often comes up is, I'm now worried it's going to happen to me. What, what, you know, what would you say to, to people that have, that have had instances of pancreatic cancers in their family? What kind, of, what kind of things do people, you know, who've had pancreatic cancer in their family, what should they be thinking about? We know of, of several um, risk factors that can increase a, a person's risk of developing pancreatic cancer. We know that people who have a, a, a significant family history of pancreatic cancer have, a, have an increased risk. And that tends to be more than one individual on one side of the family. You know, the whole reason why we recruit two or more affected individuals on one side of the family is because just having one doesn't increase their risk beyond that of someone who who doesn't have one affected member in their family. The the, the same rule for pancreatic cancer applies for any other form of cancer in terms of reducing risk. Um, and so 
you know, avoiding um, tobacco and alcohol, um, living a, a, a an active lifestyle and, and maintaining a healthy weight are all the things that that people can can take control of themselves. Normally, as I say, that just having that one case of of pancreatic cancer in the family wouldn't um, increase someone's personal risk unless they themselves carry a, a mutation in a in a known cancer causing gene, um, and then you know they they would become eligible for recruitment to ourselves. Are you still looking for people to to take part in the, in the in the study and the research? Yes, <laughs> yes, we are. So who who are you after? Anyone um, with two or more relatives affected by pancreatic cancer and one of them would need to be a first degree relative to themselves um, and then a first degree relative to their effective, affected first degree relative. So it's um, two or more relatives um, and one of them is a first degree kinship, we call that. Um, so a first degree relative would either be a child, a sibling or a parent. Um, so that's your first degree relative. And then if you've got... Um, a second degree relative so say it was your your mother um, and your mother's sister so your mother and your aunt that would make you eligible for Europac um, as well as a parent and a grandparent would make you eligible for Europac um, obviously all of these if they have to be on the same side of the family so you can't have your mother and then your paternal uncle because um, it would only come from one side um so there would be that anyone who's got three or more relatives doesn't matter where they are in your family as long as they're all on one side so all maternal relatives um would make you eligible or all paternal relatives three or more um and then anyone who carries a known cancer mutation so whether that's BRCA um CDKN2A any of those and who has one relative affected by pancreatic cancer are all eligible um for registration with Europac and once you're registered um we obviously assess your risk and then depending on that we can offer you yearly surveillance and screening um and a clinic appointment I was going to say, so what does it actually involve? Because again, I think people hear the words sort of like screening and they hear the words yeah. um, it, and it, get, it it could be a little scary. They can think mm-hmm. it could be that they're going to have random things injected into them or you know, yeah. I'm obviously, you know, making it extreme for the point of this, but you know, yeah. it's, 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 it can be a bit mysterious and a mm-hmm. bit kind of what's going to happen to me. I don't know. And that could put people off, even though yeah. actually it could be really useful for everybody. Yeah, exactly. So, um, well, first of all, there's the registration process. Um, So we will ask for a detailed family history and some medical history about yourself. um, And obviously you'll have to sign a consent form. Um, And they're all sent back to Europac along with confirmations of diagnosis. We have to see confirmations of the the cancers in your family because obviously we don't want to screen anybody who's not at a genuinely high risk. Um, So we ask for all of that information. Um, and then if you are invited onto our screening programme, you um, will be offered a clinic appointment, first of all, with our research fellow. Um, and at this appointment, you'll go through the screening programme in detail um, and look at all of the different types of screening that we offer. Um, so our, our most common and most regular screening format, so to speak, that we use um, is a baseline CT scan. 
um, an endoscopic ultrasound and then we perform two blood tests and then every year after that you'll have the endoscopic ultrasound and the blood tests um, we've got more than one centre across the UK so if um, all the consenting is done consenting is done through here through Liverpool um, but then we can refer to a closer screen centre for you to have that that test every year um, we do have other methods of screening as well for example if if you don't want to consent to having um different types of screening because we're research it's totally voluntary so you can take in part as in as many or as little of the screening tests as you wish um and if there's a year for example during covid a lot of our participants haven't felt comfortable attending the hospital so it's completely voluntary so they just opted not to have screening that year and then when they pick it up again the year after um so it's all very much on their terms as well this might sound like a daft question because I know there's no such thing as a normal day, but what is it like being part of a research team? Because again, I feel like this is something that we hear about. We hear about people going, oh yeah, I'm researching into this, but we don't. We never really hear what it's like. Now, I don't care if you think it's deathly dull. I'm really interested mm-hmm. in, in, in what it is that you, you do get up to because yeah. I've got this vision of labs and exciting stuff, but I can also, I'm guessing there's a lot of paperwork. Yeah, there's a lot of paperwork. I mean, <laughs> you can just look at all the files behind us. <laughs> there's a lot of paperwork. Um, unfortunately for me, that's that's my role as the coordinator. So I um, am the first point of contact for everyone getting in touch with the trial. Um, and I arrange and organise their registration. Um, I manage the database and uh, organise our clinics. Um Phil, it's a bit more exciting. Yeah, so <laughs> he gets to do the clinics. Oh, go on, I'll let you explain. <laughs> so Monday is our our big yeah. research, our, our big like clinical day, so to speak. So we, we run our clinics every Monday morning. We divide those clinics into um, people who are newly recruited to the trial and then people who we're following up who are already on our screening programme. Um, we... we the structure that we have is we have two new appointments and then we have six follow-up um, people who we see over the course of the morning. Um, we In that clinic, we will <coughs> consent them to our screening programme. We'll talk about it in in, de- in detail and, and answer any questions that people may have. Um, we'll take samples of blood and urine from people who are... Um, kind enough to volunteer samples that we can we add to our tissue bank and we we can uh, use them for for research that we we conduct um lunchtime is when i i tend to do the the admin from that um clinic or at least try to it tends to spill over from um after lunchtime um two o'clock we sit down as a group and so um annabella myself and prof halloran and prof greenhalf and we we review all of our um, newly registered families. We decide who are, you know, we, we do that kind of formal risk assessment process at that meeting and um, decide which individuals would be suitable for screening, whether or not we need any further information from them um, or say, no, actually, you're fine. Um, following on from that meeting, that then becomes another admin process, which normally is, is Annabelle's um, Monday afternoon, sending out all of our, our review outcomes to those individuals and um so that's that's our typical monday the rest of the week it, it varies there's a, a divide between doing what needs to be done um to make sure that the screening program that we hold that we do at liverpool is is up to date and, and functional um 
and then my time's divided then between here and and the university and um you know doing because i'm doing a, a phd as part of being the research fellow here so i've got my um my commitments to that as well both you know using the data that we we develop over on the uh, the hospital site and over in the the labs in the the university doing the experimental side of it what made you want to get involved in research this is for both of you do I do first? No, you go first. No, I <laughs> For me, my my clinical practice is based on what we have previously got to find out about well, all the conditions that, that um, I'm involved in managing. But being involved in research, it it allows for the development of that next stage. You know, that kind of you know, well, what else can we add to to patients' care? What is it that we can do to further understand the the conditions that we're um, that we're helping our our patients with that really my big motivation is you know being able to understand the um, the conditions that people are affected by to the sort of degree that allows for us to to give the best possible outcome to to people that we treat yeah could totally agree with that it's, it's really rewarding as well like although um I mean, frankly speaking, the way we're not finding there's no cure being found here right now. But you know, the the way that we screen people and we offer them that year where they've they've had that screening at the beginning of the year, and then for the rest of the year, then they get those results and they don't have to worry. And being able to do that for those people that have got these that have been so badly affected by pancreatic cancer and seeing their family members affected by it. It's so rewarding to be able to say to them, okay, like everything's normal this year, you've got nothing to worry about and we'll see you again next year. And it's like, it's the sense of relief that you can give those people. Um, And just helping people, even if they're not eligible for screening as well, being able to reassure them, saying Mm -hmm. we've assessed your risk and we don't feel that you're you're at a high enough risk to subject you to this screening and being able to tell people that and, and just be this, you know, this information hub for these people as well is is so rewarding and it's it's just like probably the best part of all of it being able to help so many people even if it's not offering them screening or if it is offering them screening yeah i guess being told that you're not eligible is almost like a relief for some people as well as as well as also sort of like i guess there's a bit of it's a bittersweet relief because they're like oh no i'd like to be screened oh actually i don't need to be screened that's actually quite good (laughs) yeah that's sometimes i like when people email and say, oh, I've, I've just had one family member affected and it's, I feel like I'm letting them down by saying, oh, you can't register and, and you know, you're, you're not eligible for screening. But then really I'm telling them good news, like, oh, you know, you're not at this higher risk, but it's it, at the same time, it still feels hard to tell them like, oh, you can't register at the same time. Do you think one day it'll be one of those things that we screen for in the same way we screen for breast cancer, the same way we screen for prostate cancer and um, and, and cervical cancer and all of that? I really hope so. Yeah. That's um that's certainly the intention. Yeah. The difficulty that we have um with with pancreatic cancer is purely just numbers really. You know, it, it's it compared to those cancers that we do have screening programs for, it's it it's more uncommon. Um and so when it comes to trying to develop a, a, a screening program, we, we need the evidence behind a a screening program that we can put out onto the NHS. And if we're if we've got relatively low numbers to research on, then it just it makes it difficult. 
Yeah. And like you've said before, haven't you, that, you know, pancreatic cancer is so rare anyway. And then again, we're looking at a subset of people who Mm. have been affected by pancreatic cancer. So like you said before, there's 90% of people who have sporadic um, cases of pancreatic cancer in their family. And it's just that one relative. Whereas we're looking at the 10% of already such a fine amount of people anyway, a fine population of people. Um, It's really hard to say, but we're looking at such a specific thing anyway. We need something that's going to be able to to allow it to be caught early on, you know, which you know is the the aim of any screening program. Um, but you know, given the 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 poor survival statistics that's associated with pancreatic cancer, then we've we've got to continue to work towards getting something that's going to allow for reliable early detection for people. If people are concerned um, about their their family history of pancreatic cancer, they can certainly get in touch with us. Yeah, we can make a a fairly reliable judgment just based on you know, a, an initial bit of information from people. We're always happy to to hear from people and to hopefully put their minds at rest or you know or, or bring them into to your packet if they, if it's something that they're eligible for. And how can people get in touch? What's the best way? I think the best way is to get in touch through our website, um, europactrial.com. Um, there's all of our information sheets are on there and they're available to you to download and have read through. There's ones for the registry if you'd just like to take part in the registry. And there's obviously our screening information sheets as well. So they're all on there. And there is a contact us form on the website so you can get in touch and uh, send me an email. Well, thanks to both Annabelle and Phil for taking the time to talk to me for this episode of the podcast. If you want to find out more about the Europac study or get in touch with them, maybe you want to apply to be part of the screening, then you can go to their website. It's europactrial.com. Now I'll pop that uh, website link in the show notes too, so you can find it there. And of course, please share this podcast, share it with your friends, your family, social media, everywhere. Let's get it out there and get people understanding a little bit more about pancreatic cancer. You can also leave us a review and a rating. And if you want to make sure you do not miss an episode because we're coming out one a day across November, you can follow. There should be a button in your podcast app that says follow. Click on that and you won't miss an episode. Thank you so much for listening. And of course, if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so. You can just go to our website, purplerainbow.co.uk and I'll be back again tomorrow.